Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. Started a new podcast called Uncut with Jay Cutler. Most of you know me from the NFL, some of you have seen me on Instagram, and some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, turning topics, and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life, former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler, Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. We are continuing the division-centric off-season review, season preview series with the Pacific Division. And my guests for the Pacific, Ben Golliver of the Washington Post and Matt Moore of the Action Network. Lots of interesting stuff to talk about here. (laughs) Much on the Lakers because they changed their team the most, but a lot on the other teams as well and where things stand in the division. Episode runs just under an hour, but a lot of great stuff in here. Hope you really enjoy it. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Thanks My for pleasure, having Danny. us. Glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping over each other. That, 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 that's the way it always goes. And um, I, I like to start these with the idea of who got better and who got worse. We'll, we'll start with Ben. But one of the things kind of as we get into that, that I thought was so unusual about this division, in some ways, especially with so many talented teams, is just how little most of these teams changed. Yeah, you know, I looked at this uh, overview and it did feel like the Lakers made all the changes for the entire division, you know, uh, by themselves. <laughs> I think with, you know, Sacramento is a team that probably needed to make more dis- uh, you know changes than they did. They come back pretty stable. The Clippers, I think, were pretty much in a holding pattern uh, because of the Kawhi Leonard situation. Um, the Warriors have been waiting on Clay Thompson. Obviously, that's going to be the biggest change for them. And then Phoenix, it was all about, hey, you know, we had our dream season, best year in, in more than a decade or, you know, really probably two or three decades. Uh, let's try to keep the band back together. The Lakers just said, you know, dynamite the whole thing. Um, you know, other than LeBron and AD were, you know, basically changing this entire rotation and they just brought in a ton of big names. Doesn't this feel like kind of the natural endpoint of the player empowerment era? where we've got a New York franchise and an L.A. franchise just playing buddy ball on kind of a, you know, a, a degree that we've never seen before. That Just the sheer names the Lakers have accumulated are pretty wild. Everybody's made the joke. They're, they're amazing title contenders if it's like 2014 or 2012. Um, but I still think it's going to be a fascinating experiment. And, and you're saying who got better, who got worse. Um, even though I'm one of the biggest skeptics of the Russell Westbrook move, I actually do think, you know, in the sum total of everything the Lakers did, I do think they got better compared to last season um, you know going down the list I would say the Warriors are going to be better mostly because of Clay. I think the Suns uh, you know they, they didn't get worse in any meaningful way to me uh, the Clippers of course they're going to be worse because of Kawhi and then Sacramento I just kind of viewed them as same old story and, and sometimes when you don't get better you get worse and so maybe in that situation I would say they actually got worse. How do you see it Matt? I think I, I am with Ben in that I was really surprised when I went through this and was just looking at the Kings and was like, they really did nothing, did they? Like, they they really were like, nope, we're running it back. But with Tristan Thompson this time, it is frightening how little that team did outside of adding Davion Mitchell. Um, yeah, look, I think the Bledsoe move for the Clippers is maybe uh, an interesting one in terms of upside versus downside. Like, you've got to be able to replace 
a little bit of Kawhi's ball handling and defense. And I don't necessarily think anyone would think Aaron Bledsoe is a great replacement for him offensively. But I do think like at least, okay, he can take minutes. He can handle the ball. uh, He can run an offense, which I think is something that they do need, especially if they're going to be without Kawhi. You have fewer bailout opportunities. And then with the Lakers, I think trying to figure out the Lakers got better or worse is such a difficult question because they're so entirely different from who they were. But they're still, in my opinion, probably going to try and be that other team. Like there's been this kind of discussion that, oh, well, they got rid of all their good defensive players and they brought in Russ and Malik Monk and Kendrick Nunn. So they're not going to be as good defensively, but I think that they're still going to try and be as good defensively. I, this team still profiles very much as a very physical team that's going to try and bully you. So I don't know how that's going to work. I have no idea how to like analyze whether the Lakers got better, worse, or are mostly the same year over year, especially because they had a lot of combinations last year that should have worked, but didn't have a chance to because everybody got hurt and then most of those guys are gone and so we have this entirely new concoction I'll be honest with you I really don't know what to make of the Lakers I can make a strong argument for them being better and I can make a stronger argument for them being worse well, let me hey, let me jump in and ask you a question, Matt. I mean, is the should we be defaulting to the Lakers are going to be better because they're likely to have better health and I think better rest for their two stars in LeBron and AD? And you can change all the pieces around those two guys as much as you want, but like ultimately those two guys are going to kind of determine you know their baseline and their ceiling. I have a hard time believing that they're going to have you know they're going to have uh, fewer games from those guys than they got last year, and I can't imagine they're going to go into the playoffs with worse health for those two guys. So do they get better just by? By that very simple definition. Well, I think if, if what's going to be interesting is okay, we if we judge them by getting better and win record, then yeah, I think absolutely right. Like it's hard to imagine them not being better than their win loss record last season with the injuries. If we look at who they were that first month of the season, or we look at the 2020 team, and we start getting into more of like the advanced stuff, like do you expect their point differential to be better? Do you expect them their offensive efficiency ranking? And you can care or not care about those things and say who cares as long as they get the wins but this is the whole thing right like they're not trying to win a regular season championship they're trying to win the nba championship which requires being a really strong team you know usually you need some level of balance there it's hard to be especially in this era i think it's difficult to be a real serious contender unless you have a top i don't know 12 ish offense which i think is doable for them because of the firepower i, I agree that if we get past the details and we just go ten thousand feet and we just go look they're gonna have more games from lebron and ad then yeah they're probably gonna be fine but trying to figure out where they stack up in this league, in this conference and against the previous versions of themselves I think gets a little bit more granular and a lot more complicated with the moves that they made. Yeah, and a a reason why it gets even thornier for me is because when you really get to it, I mean Matt brought this up, like the Lakers I mean, I think a lot of their success is going to be defined by whether they win the championship this year and yes, health will be a factor in that. Well, for the sake of this, we'll exclude that because we can't predict that. It's hard to do. But something that I've been struggling with is the idea of starting and closing fives for the Lakers versus those other iterations. Like, I've been very public that my belief is that the Lakers are at their best offensively when it's built around a LeBron and Anthony Davis high pick and roll, and then you have shooting around that. And AD is such a wonderful defender that you can make all that work. Well, if that's the framework that we're building this in, then Westbrook is a is conflicting because if he's not involved in the primary action, you can help off him. You can get into all the, all the stuff, incidentally, that of all teams 
the Lakers did really well two years ago when they played in the playoffs. And then the other pieces are also a little bit weird. You know, losing KCP, losing Caruso, Caruso by choice, KCP in the Westbrook trade, and replacing them with, you know, none, and then a larger role, presumably for Horton Tucker and Ariza and the return of Rashawn Rondo. And my instinct is they'll have a better regular season record, but I think they'll be, I'm skeptical. And, you know, I've, I've been wrong on these things before. I've been right on them before. I think they are a weaker playoff team at full strength than either the 2020 or the 21 team. The 21 team, we basically only saw at full strength for like a couple games. Yeah, I, I think uh, there's a strong argument to be made there. I, I certainly think if they had been healthy, they would have beaten Phoenix. And if Phoenix wins the West, then there's a good chance last year, the Lakers, if they were healthy, that group would have won the West again. I do think it's very dangerous for them though to to allow those kinds of comparisons to past iterations sort of define things you know i think a lot of people are going through that right now because the pandemic's been going on for so long at some point you have to be like hey i'm never going to go back to being that person uh before march 2020 i just need to like you know adjust my mindset and just focus on the future and i kind of think that's where the lakers are as well um because so many of the pieces have changed i mean you listen off a bunch of names who are no longer there all those guys were part of the title rotation other than dwight and like tht i think you know ad and LeBron, those four guys are the only guys who still remain. I mean, well, and incidentally, Rondo, Rondo's oh, Rondo, back. yes, and yeah, they snuck him back in the uh, the side door with Dwight. That's right. Um, and you know, you got to have questions though. Rondo and Dwight are they as helpful as they were two years ago? You know, I, I'm not totally sure on that front. Um, I think Westbrook is the biggest story of this season. I think that this is an ultimatum year for him. Can he actually be a playoff player? Uh, can the Lakers find a way to use him after exploiting him in the playoffs two years ago? Can he show some level of progress after basically five straight years of postseason flameouts in one way or another? And can he keep up with the really talented guards in the Western Conference? They're going to have to play somebody in the first round who's really good. Can he step up defensively? And then can he find a way to be effective in a, a, a lower usage role than he's used to the worst case scenario is he somehow comes in and marginalizes an Anthony Davis and I don't think the Lakers will let that happen uh, but it's going to be a, a season-long process and you know you factor in the size of his personality the, the size and scope of his fame the LeBron factor the title expectations to me Westbrook is the number one story for the entire NBA season it's funny that you said that you know the concern is him limiting AD because I think if anything I think having Westbrook is going to do good things for Davis because Ooh. Westbrook creates so many easy assists for big men just by the sheer breakneck pace of his ability to to break contain on the perimeter, get to the rim, drawing help, and then make easy passes. Westbrook isn't um, a high level, in my opinion, passer in terms of technique. Like, I don't think his placement is as good as Harden's or Jokic's or LeBron's or Luka's for that matter. But I do think that he's very good about manipulating defenses and punishing them, particularly when he has someone that he can dish to within five to 10 feet of the rim. I think Davis is going to get a lot of those short baseline jumpers that Serge Ibaka used to get in those situations. Honestly, if you look back, LeBron embraced the pick and pop with Davis more than he has with any of his other partners, including Kevin Love, which is crazy, but true. And I do think that to a degree, though, LeBron doesn't necessarily fit awesomely well with a big man that's not just like a Tristan Thompson to put pressure at the rim. And so I think in some levels, Davis and LeBron could have been better. Westbrook and Davis feels like a very natural fit 
to me. So I think there'll be some situations in which I think Davis, particularly because Davis doesn't necessarily do awesome when he's faced with a tough physical matchup one-on-one, getting Davis high percentage opportunities in short uh, handle situations, catch and shoot, short dunks, those kind of things, I think will actually increase some of his numbers just by how easy it will be because of the, you can't have to, you have to stay home on LeBron. You have to bring help on Westbrook and that's going to open up some opportunities for Davis, I think. One thing that I'm going to keep a really close eye on this year is that Russell Westbrook over the course of his career, and of course there are a lot of different phases there, he's generally taken about 35% of his shots around the basket. And that was as high, the highest it ever was in the, you know, in the later stages of his career was actually 42% on the rock. His year on the Rockets. That dropped all the way to 19% with the Wizards. And some of that is, you know, the talent that was around and different, different everything with Washington compared to both Houston and the later OKC years. But where he fits in there, and that kind of ties in with what Matt was saying in terms of passing in those circumstances versus finishing. And if he doesn't think he can get all of those baskets, then oftentimes he's, he's going to look for that pass and he's going to make that pass. And naturally, defenses are going to react to Russell Westbrook when he's in that area. So can you do that? And also, how does that tie in with the Lakers when they're playing bigger? You know, when the, this is, they they lost Marcus Gasol, they brought back to White and they added DeAndre Jordan. So this is going to be a very big team and not only a very big team, but when they're playing those centers, those guys don't shoot. So how much how much space does Russell Westbrook have? Can he still wiggle through those at, you know, this is going to be his age 33 season? I, I I don't know the answers to it. And also the answers might change, not only because, you know, he's getting older over the course of the season, but because the Lakers personnel and like how often they're playing these big guys, I think it's going to change in the playoffs when they, they're going to kind of have to, I think, go smaller. Well, that could be another way uh, Westbrook opens up Anthony Davis just by breaking a ton of layups and allowing him <laughs> a lot of second chance opportunities. You know, I mean, maybe uh, Dwight Howard and DeAndre Jordan can get in on that, uh, you know, get in on that party on as that well. Party as well. Um, um, I concern with Westbrook, you know, doing too much, it's usually a playoff thing, right? It's like there, there just kind of comes moments in series where the series starts to slip or he's starting to feel like, hey, he's not involved enough. And then he just decides to go for himself. You know, teams are daring him to shoot. He can't resist. He's going to be surrounded by a lot of very experienced, very skilled and very respected players. I wonder if that will change his approach, right? Because I do think he's been in a lot of team context where, you know, even though his shot selection isn't great, it's at least somewhat defensive because it's like, look, the pressure and the burden falls to him as being one of his team's best players. He's never played with a big man as good as Anthony Davis ever in his entire career. And you can make a case LeBron's the best player he's ever played with. We'll see where, you know, LeBron comes back from an an age decline perspective this year. But it's either LeBron or like 2016 um, Kevin Durant, or you you could maybe throw Harden into that mix as well. But I would still say he's a a little cut below those guys. Um, That's a lot of talent. You know, Westbrook has shown some ability to adapt uh, when he was playing alongside Harden and changing his role. He also took a step back when he was playing with Paul George during Paul George's kind of MVP caliber year. So how he navigates all of that to me, like I said earlier, number one story in the NBA this season. The only thing I'd say about about Russ as far as like the playoffs go is, um, you know, I, I think, look, I want to toss out last year. The Wizards actually gave, I think, more of a fight versus Philly than I was expecting, even in a gentleman's sweep. Um, the Lakers series, I think the numbers are not good. That Rockets team he was, was already, like, the Rockets team was already imploding. Like, they were already yeah. just, they, like, as, basically after Tillman Fertitta bought the team, like, they started to implode slowly. Everyone knew was, where that, that season was going. He was definitely injured, too. You know, I think that, yeah. that, was, that was definitely a fact. You go back to the Utah series in 2018, 
18, which is one that they, I think that they should have won. Um, you know, he averaged 29 points, 12 boards and, uh, eight rebounds, 7.5, uh, assists rather, and shot, you know, 40% from the field, but 36% from three. And I'm not saying that I'm counting on him to shoot. Well, I'm not, I don't think you can. I do think that some players tend to raise who they are after they've accomplished the individual accolades, which he has, and they tend to adjust if they're surrounded. Like it is impossible for Russ to go in there and think he's the best player on the team. Even Russ, even Russ, <laughs> who eight ninety five percent, like ninety nine. I think he thinks he's better than Anthony Davis, but I, I don't think that he thinks he's better than LeBron. And so I think that LeBron's presence will probably open things. And look, if it, but I'll say this: if it doesn't work, we're going to know immediately. Like we're going to know right away if this thing is not working and if there's tension, we're going to be able to see it on their faces if those two simply cannot figure out a way to coexist on the floor. And to me, that leads to the most pressing potential question here, which is if it doesn't work, can and will the Lakers pivot or are they kind of pot committed to this? And do they say like, and Russell Westbrook, and I'm not saying that it won't work or that it can't or anything like that, but if it doesn't, if they identify that in December or January or February, Russell Westbrook is not the easiest guy to make a move. He's He has a player option for next season worth $47.1 million. So you it, it, like that question for Palenka, for LeBron, for Russ is so fascinating of the like, OK, if we if we're just narrowing the field to the times where it doesn't work and they know in time, you would say like, oh, it's going to be really hard to do it. But at the same point, you have LeBron James and you have a potentially narrow window. It's that circumstance is just insane. So I uh, actually think, you know, Westbrook started slow his first season in Houston. Uh, I think he started slow in part because of injuries last year in Washington. He tends to play better in the second half of season than the first half of the season. So even if it's rocky early and the Lakers got an absolute gift of a schedule from the schedule makers, I think it's yeah. like 15 of their first 18 at home or something like that. So even if it's weird early, I don't see a midseason pivot coming. But it, it goes back to what Danny was uh, talking about earlier with like, what are their best lineups? to start and to close and that's where it's like a real test for Frank Vogel because we've seen a number of coaches just not have the guts to go away from Westbrook even you know in that Houston Lakers series where he was obviously injured and just actively hurting the Rockets um, you know game after game D'Antoni never went away from him in you know kind of key situations could there be a scenario where the pivot comes in the playoffs and it's like look you know Russell you're still playing 30 minutes but you know the last six of the game you're out and so Somebody else is in your spot and they're having a better spacing and a better balance around the uh, LeBron and Anthony Davis pick and roll thing that uh, Danny was describing earlier. That's sort of what I'm wondering if it will happen. And, and, you know, it's it's a long way away, but I would hope that Vogel would have kind of the confidence and the stature to be able to kind of pull a move off like that, because I just don't think you should pencil in Westbrook no matter what into every single playoff closing lineup, given some of the defensive issues, given the shot selection, given the poor outside shooting. Um, it's possible they're able to construct groups that are more effective without them. I mean, I, I think that's a, a good line of thought. I would ask you what Frank Vogel has to do with it. Like, does LeBron <laughs> want him on the floor or not? That's yeah. like that's it, right? So this is part of the key is LeBron is not always a rational decision maker. And he approved this move, which sent out multiple members of, of the Clutch family and brought in Russ. So he's invested in it. This is, obviously has his approval. But that's going to be, the I think, the question is, what does LeBron think about this? Like, LeBron runs the Lakers in my opinion and if that's the case then you have to think about how does LeBron view it does LeBron think that he's the problem or does LeBron 
think that he's not the problem. And the politics involved, I think, are, are way more complicated than just does Frank Vogel have the stones? Because oftentimes I just don't think these decisions are up to him. Totally possible. Yeah, that's that's another just huge wrinkle in all this. One other big picture thing is we're talking about better and worse. That is that, yes, the rest of this division stayed really stable, but that was no guarantee. I mean, Reggie Jackson and Nicola Batum were in-demand free agents that chose to come back. Batum's case, I think it was probably less than at least other teams should have offered, um, whether that's, you know, there, maybe there's an understanding after this or, you know, everything, he's still getting paid by the Hornets. And then it's sort of the same with Sacramento, where Rashawn Holmes could have left and didn't. And so... I don't know. I, I mean, I'm frustrated that the Kings didn't change more and the Clippers, I'm, you know, I'm kind of frustrated more with the changes that they made. But like, that is another element of this is that those two teams in particular, like this could have gone much worse than it did. And I would say they're fortunate to retain some of their contributors just because with early bird rights or non-bird rights, it can be hard. I think the Batum and the Reggie Jackson situations are nice validation for what the Clippers have been trying to build. It's a first class organization. I mean, Balmer is the real deal as an owner. He spares no expense. They've got awesome facilities. They're about to, you know, break ground on their new arena, which is going to open up in a couple of years. They take care of their players um and you know i think there's an understanding that like once Kawhi's back healthy you're going to be in the title contention kind of year in and year out and for veteran guys um like nicholas batum and reggie jackson who have been on the other side in much worse situations whether it's charlotte detroit all of that sounds pretty good right and and maybe it's it's not just about pure dollars and cents and it's more about fit and how th- that organization was able to coax really good basketball out of them i think both those guys were kind of resurrection cases last year i mean batum there was not a lot of interest in, in him after the Charlotte experience and Reggie Jackson it seemed like his career I mean it, it was not necessarily over but unsalvageable I mean it was definitely in steep steep decline and he came back and just had a phenomenal postseason and a really nice regular season as well so I do think if you're the Clippers you need to have those kinds of situations because you have the gigantic contracts already in place with Kawhi and Paul George and you know you've even thrown some money at guys like Morris and Kennard so the more of these veterans who you can sort of prove your worth to as an organization keep them loyal, keep them in the fold, the better. And I think they're going to get a lot of good minutes from both those guys this season, even though I know it's going to be a step back year uh, because of no Kawhi. Yeah, I'm, this team is really fascinating in, in trying to peg the expectations for uh, the, I mean, even the win total, right? To, to dip into the gambling sphere, like 45 and a half, you're like, that seems a little soft. Like, this is going to be a pretty good team. Like, they should be upwards of 46, 47, even without Kawhi. They still bring back such a potent three-point shooting team like they were so terrific in that last year even if they regress to a small degree it probably won't be significant enough to knock them off of win pace they still can switch they bring a lot to that they can go big with Zubosh. they have positional flexibility pg i'm really curious to see here because to his credit and Kawhi, they actually did try and manage the schedule last year like they played in a high number of games and we're really only out for injury. And I wonder if PG is going to have to take a step back in terms of load managing a bit just to make sure that there's not a major injury because he's going to have such a high usage rate. And that's also an uncomfortable area for him. He likes to pick his spots. I talked to him about this when I interviewed him and for that MVP caliber season in OKC. He really likes what he likes doing is settling in. If they're focused on someone else, he punishes them for it. They adjust to him. He takes a step back. He has a real he has a strong sense for feel of the game in terms of how the defense is is focusing. But that also means that he's not necessarily one to force the issue a lot. I'm not sure that he's at his best in those situations, which means that they need Reggie Jackson and Eric Bledsoe to carry some of the load offensively. And that's where I think you start to go. Ee, 
a little bit and be concerned. But at the same time, like Jackson, this team played with such a good vibe in the playoffs. They started to believe in that Paul George is a leader. That to me was a big part of their success versus the Jazz. Was this team really rallied around Paul George basically after Montrez Harrell and Lou Williams were gone? And I think that carries over to this season. I think this is PG's team. Um, there's still a lot of questions about whether Kawhi will come back at any point. I simply can't see it. But I do think that they'll probably be better than what the numbers are going to suggest they're going to be while still not being ever a really serious contender because Kawhi won't be there. Yeah, yeah I think their vibe, their vibe being better was no accident. I think that the guys are still with the Clippers walking on eggshells around Kawhi Leonard. They don't know exactly kind of uh, how to fit in. He doesn't communicate a ton with his teammates. And they had a bunch of new faces there last year that were still kind of learning um, how to play with Kawhi. You know, obviously he's a phenomenal player, but once he's out of the equation, all the pressure goes away, right? And then there's a lot more um, offensive opportunities and possessions for all those guys to do their thing. And like you mentioned earlier with the positional versatility they can play big they can play medium they can play small and they can play really small and we get into some of those really small lineups there's just space everywhere for those guys to go nuts and and hit three-point shots drive off the dribble and just have a lot of fun so i don't think it was a a coincidence that their vibe was so good and i actually expect that to continue into this season even though there's no Kawhi. i think the outside perception will be oh this is going to be a really dark and sad season for the clippers and i think as long as paul george especially stays healthy i think there's a chance that they're just playing loose and free with no expectations and look they're you know probably not going to be uh you know a top seed in the western conference by any stretch but they can still be a team that's you know very potent offensively and and has a, a good time together one other point i wanted to make on the clippers that i've i've been lingering on a little bit over the last couple weeks is they have this they have this interesting split so Kawhi, we'll, we'll take him out of the equation for now but they have i would say they have a pretty deep group of capable players you know when you think about having multiple big men that can play and they brought in just this Winslow and Terrence Mann really stepped into a larger role. But the Clippers also gave a significant number of roster spots. Um, I have it at three right now, and that might that might end up increasing to straight up rookies, you know, to guys that I generally wouldn't expect to be in Ty Lue's rotations unless they really earn it. You know, they drafted Keon Johnson in the first round, Preston and BJ Boston in the second. And that is a lot of roster spots for guys that you're probably not expecting to contribute right away when one of your stars is already out for a while. We don't know how long. And so that is a concern of mine for the Clippers is this idea that at this, the non-Kawhi full strength, I think they have enough pieces to be this competitive team. I agree with Matt that when I saw the number for them, it looked soft. But I'm also concerned that it's not even just like a Paul George injury, because sure, any team losing their best available player is going to have all these problems. But even, you know, like if Bledsoe misses time or Morris misses time or Batum misses time, it becomes a much bigger problem. And that's when the collective age and wanting to balance out rest and all that becomes a larger factor, because if unless somebody like Keon Johnson can really step up, you start to get into the points where it's like maybe they start losing some games that they probably shouldn't. I, I think the rookies thing, is that a little bit of a, a hedge or just trying to juggle your short-term versus your long-term strategy here? I mean, their salary cap spot's pretty tight. I mean, Dan, you'd be able to speak to that better than I would, but um, they're going to need like one or two of those guys to hit if they want to kind of prolong this thing once Kawhi's back fully healthy. Now, me personally, not reporting, just assuming, I don't think Kawhi is going to play at all this coming season, right? When you're looking at when he had the surgery, how long he would be out, and then his track record for how they you know, kind of manage 
manage his rehabilitations. It's just hard to see how he would get back with any sort of ramp up time before the playoffs. And I just don't think you drop a player like that straight into the playoffs and hope for the best. I mean, look, he can't afford a re-injury, right? At that point, you know, with the new contract they just gave him, I mean, they would be completely backed into a corner for years and years and years to come. So I think caution is in order uh, from the organization stand in terms of how they treat Kawhi. And they're going to need some of these young guys to pan out, aren't they? They are. And um, to your point, I think that the the Clippers, Lawrence Frank and the, the collective front office there, I think that one of the things they might have been looking at is just understanding practically, you need young players to step into roles, not only financially, but also just because it's hard for really expensive teams to add that much talent. And yes, the Lakers did unbelievable work with Min contracts this year and other teams have done really well with the mid-level and I mean the the Clippers did it with with early bird rights on Reggie Jackson getting a multi-year contract there but the Clippers owe two of their next three first round picks and then swaps the other two years which I don't think are going to matter just depending on where the Thunder are at those different points. But so that means it's going to be hard for them to add those really to add those players. So now you're kind of taking three rolls of the dice at once, and they're not that expensive in the immediate. And then the other benefit that you get doing it that way, assuming you don't need those roster spots, is that if somebody doesn't hit, you could you can trade them and it's A, it's not that much money, and you could even probably like pay the other team kind of functionally to take them, so then you're not even paying them the salary that you know it's not counting on your books in the same way. So I think that teams with limited with limited resources moving forward need to do this more often. And I, I wouldn't, I'm not surprised. I think the Clippers are generally a well-run front office, so I'm not surprised. But it is somewhat risky when they did all this knowing that their best player is going to be out for either the whole year or something close to it. Well, I think part of that too is um, one, they're you know they they are going to have to gear back up next season to make a run with Kawhi. Again, the extension on him was important. Resigning, I think you mentioned how much injury the blood cell or somebody else could hurt. This is where a lot of it is, is, is how I often think about this, you know, Kawhi's 35 million or whatever he's on the books for. That's either allocated in one player that is there to bail you out. If you're having a game where nothing is going right, nobody can hit anything. Nobody's shooting well. Everyone's tired. Everyone's hungover. or you add it to different players, right? So it's, you have more depth. And so one of those guys can have a night and hopefully one of the options can kind of hit for you. The rookies kind of in, in I think increase that kind of variability. A lot of this, I think also is, I mean, I think they are banking on Terrence Mann here, right? Yes. Like, yes. Mann showed a lot in the playoffs, but I think that that's one of the reasons why maybe they didn't make more moves rather than just Bledsoe and the rookies is I think that they look at what Terrence Mann brought to the table and go, you know, with, with a bigger role, maybe he provides us with enough defense and production for us just to get by versus, you know, to be up on the bad teams, get a few wins versus the good teams and be all right versus the middle. Yeah, Danny, I mean, you always want to talk about breakout guys in these, uh, you know, division previews. I had Mann basically at the top of my list this year. You know, I, I think that he, you know, arguably had the kind of like a half breakout down the stretch last year, but I definitely think they're counting on him for more minutes, more touches, more points, more everything uh, this coming year. And I think he's one of these guys who benefits from the lack of pressure, right? It's like, just go out there and do it. Don't worry about the mistakes. Don't worry about, oh, you know, if you have a couple turnovers, we're going to pull you out you know, and let Kawhi take back control of the offense and do everything. Uh, it's just a longer leash there for all those guys. And I think man benefits from that too. I, I think he does. And the other guy to watch sort of in that vein is Kennard. And I thought part of the reason they did that extension with Kennard a little while back is that it's this idea, Nate 
Duncan has articulated this well of like salary slots. So basically, if it's not Kennard, now you can bring in somebody making 12 to 15 million and who isn't Luke Kennard, theoretically. And so I think this is his opportunity to say, well, it's me. It's not you're trading for somebody else. And how he fits with Paul George, how he fits with Bledsoe is going to be important for how this team works. And uh, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of Luke Kennard as a 16 game player. I think that, you know, his defensive limitations there, I actually really liked his offensive potential going back to his rookie year with Detroit. I thought he had a little bit more with the ball in his hands. We haven't quite seen it as much over the last couple of years, but I think this is the year for Frank to decide he's our guy or it's somebody else. They could do it later. I mean, Kennard's under contract all the way as a non-guarantee in 24-25 or team option, but same basic structure for the team. And, and so I think that there is time with it, but I also think you want to make, you definitely want to make that decision before the 23 playoffs if we're relying on the idea that Kawhi probably isn't going to be himself or play at all necessarily this year. But there's a decision to be made there. I want to transition briefly. I mean, we're already kind of in the trade, the transactions that happen. One of the ones that I think is important to discuss is one that actually didn't happen, and that's Golden State having these two lottery picks. And I don't think there was a reasonable offer available, especially with Lillard and Beal looking like they're going to stick around, at least for the time being. And so they used both of those picks on Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Moody. And we don't know how the Warriors are going to use those players, but now they're in the point where it's basically like all the cars are driven off the lot. They can't trade any of these picks as perspective. Oh, it's the second pick in the draft. You can take whoever you want. You can nope it's James Wiseman now and Kaminga is there and Moody's there and maybe this team is is good enough that they that they can just wait those guys out and they can do everything else but it is the balancing of present and future for this organization players coaches front office is such a it's 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 perilous because you have you know Steph Curry played at an MVP level last year are they going to are the players going to be okay with, you know, keeping these things balanced? And also the other big factor there is going to be how do these guys actually look? Because if Wiseman shows something, if Kaminga shows something, I think, you know, Draymond and Steph and Clay will be more okay with it. But if they're looking like, oh God, it's another two years away, then it becomes a real challenge. Yeah, I think one of the things I'm watching for it within this division is Kaminga versus Davion Mitchell in Sacramento. I was kind of in the camp that said, look, get Mitchell if you're Golden State. He's obviously more ready to play now. He could handle some postseason minutes. Clay's coming back. You don't want to have to make him handle the lead perimeter defensive responsibilities, you know, series after series after series. And, uh, you know, yes, you know, Mitchell might not be the shooter. He might not have as much long-term upside. But it's worth investing, you know, a quality lottery pick in him just because you do have to win with the Steph timeline, the Draymond timeline and the Clay timeline. Golden State went pretty much completely the opposite direction. And, you know, to me, at Summer League, Kaminga had some real moments. Now, they also kind of let him do whatever he wanted to do in some of the games, and it didn't always go well. I mean, sometimes he got a little bit choppy on offense. But obviously, the ceiling and the athleticism and that stuff is there for him. But the patience factor in Golden State isn't there. But you can also expect Golden State to develop him pretty well. I know they've made that a real focus of their offseason in terms of the coaches they've brought in and all that kind of stuff. And a player like Mitchell is going to struggle probably in Sacramento like lots and lots of other young players with a lack of structure, a lack of order, and then just kind of being left to your your own devices in, in terms of, you know, growing up as a player. I mean, so many guys there in Sacramento have pretty much, you know, tried to, you know, had to do it themselves. And so I'm going to be tracking that one. Who wins that decision? Does Golden State get validated because Kaminga's better more quickly than we expect? 
effect? Does it blow up in their face because Mitchell's like, you know, practically all defense and that's something that they would have uh, definitely needed in next year's playoffs? Um, you know, does Sacramento ruin Mitchell, which, you know, you hate to say before guys even played a game, but, you know, we've seen uh, a lot of careers go there to, uh, you know, early demises. Um, that's just one thing I'm going to be looking at all season long. So, you know, we kind of did the same thing a little bit, um, you know, last year uh, with the top, you know, three picks from the draft in terms of like, oh, who's actually settling into their spot better and, and Wiseman came out short shrift. I'm not sure Golden State can necessarily afford that to happen again uh, if they're if they're winding up, uh, you know, on, on kind of the less desirable side of, of these kinds of debates. I would love to know. I mean, I, I always want to know what a team's draft board looks like, but I really want to know where Kaminga was originally on their draft board to know because, I mean, that, that's a lot of it here is is you don't take fit top 10. You just don't. It's just not done. You know, you always reach for, for best player available and that's been proven kind of time and time again that over the course of enough picks, that's how it will always work out best is just taking the better talent. Um, I was, look, I was very low on Kaminga in terms of his draft props, but I was also like, you know what? He, he fell so much off of what I heard about the draft process that I was like, he's going to be sneaky pretty good because he, now he's a little bit undervalued. Like teams overexamined him and that's why he slid and now he winds up in a, what I think is a pretty good situation. Like I actually think that he might be able to contribute even if he's raw. A lot of it I think will, de- will be determined by if the Warriors can put out lineups where if they're in a winning opportunity where it's close game, you know, they got a chance to win the game. Can they put five guys on the floor that Draymond, Clay, and Steph feel good about? Whether it's Otto Porter or, you know, whether it's Wiseman or whether it's going small with Draymond at five or whether it's, you know, Damian Lee, whatever it is, um, or Kevon Looney rather, like, whatever it is to try and be like, okay, we don't have, we don't have to get something from the rookies. I think that was one of the major problems last year is without Clay, they needed Wiseman to be good and he just wasn't ready. That's a high curve, I think, for a player like that to fit into, especially given the limited practice time and meetings and everything else. So now I think you have a much more stable environment. You have the big three back. You have some veterans to fit in around them, like Otto Porter, and Bielitsa even can give them minutes. Andre Godal is back, even though I don't necessarily know what Andre can give them at this point. Um, you have a little bit more of, of an infrastructure. You know who was good last year in Juan Toscano Anderson and Jordan Poole. Um, I think the core is a little, a little bit better, and that will help make it easier for those young guys. I also do genuinely believe this, that if those guys look good playing next to the big three, even in limited minutes, if a, if a trade opportunity does come available, whether it's Bradley Beal or somebody else, the Warriors will still have some opportunity to get into those conversations and maybe make a low cost high upside opportunity to grab another piece because we know they're always looking for big moves even though they really I think found that there just wasn't that move to be made this offseason and one other guy to mention in terms of that five I don't know that he'll get there but Jordan Poole has a possibility as well and I thought that Poole both with and without Steph Curry showed some real signs during that last stretch it's funny every time he goes down to the G League it looks like Jordan Poole's a world beater or takes a level up we'll see now that they're a G League head coach is, is on the Warriors developments is on the Warriors staff now not on the G League staff we'll see if that changes anything or you know whether it was change scenery or whatever else but Poole's in that conversation if Bielitsa has stuff left he he's a possibility too I think he's actually a good fit like it's interesting for the Warriors they're the, the Lakers are actually kind of like this too where it's like there there are players who fit really well with all the other good players and then players who are actually worse comparatively when they need to do more and so like I mean Bielitsa has the experience doing more. He was, you know, his success in Europe and everything else. But at this stage in his career playing in the NBA, I think it's a little bit different. And so 
Bielita, Porter, Poole, Damian Lee, as you brought up, like maybe Mulder can get a little bit more stable defensively. He's he's a talented shooter. Like if you can get one or two of those guys to step up and Wiggins, you know, he's still not perfect, but if he continues to kind of be more in that like starter range, that's that's enough. Like when when Wiggins can be your fourth best player, then things start to line up a little bit better. And so I'm really interested in how how all of that works when they want to use Looney and Wiseman, when they want to go Draymond at five. And I think a lot of that's going to be swung by Porter and Bielitz and those type of guys. Like if they can deliver, then you go small more often. So yeah, the Warriors are... And as Matt said, it's like there's a lot less pressure on the rookies if you don't need them. And and they can sort of balance those things out. Maybe you have a couple more games where you're handling an inferior team. And so you can give those guys 10 minutes at the end and see low pressure minutes and see how it works out. You don't have to. Or maybe you can integrate them earlier and it's not going to kill you in the way that it did when they didn't have Clay. So all of those are questions how slowly they can bring Clay along. Um, I don't think we need to spend yeah. much time on, on best newcomer to the team. Oh, sorry, Ben, you were going to say something. No, just uh, just to tack on to that, I actually think if Clay doesn't start the season when it sounds like they might take it slow, that could be really good for the rookies because, again, now you just have less pressure and you give them some early minutes, developmental minutes, let them see, you know, are they, you know, getting their feet wet? Is it working? Um, who's ready? Who's not? I actually think Otto Porter is kind of the X factor for this group if you're trying to build really, you know, quality five man lineups. That's a scary spot to be in because he's been injured so much. It's almost like the Larry Nance Jr. thing in Portland where, like, if those guys can just stay healthy for a full season, it could really be a game changer. If they just have their typical season, then, you know, good luck. You're kind of uh, stuck in the mud. And personally, I'm kind of in the be elites and needs to finally prove it category. You know, I just I feel like he's been a tease. But I'm with you guys on what you said earlier. I think Poole is another one of these potential breakout guys. Um, And, you know, look, if if Clay doesn't start the season and maybe they take it really slow, there's going to be a a lot of opportunity for pool early isn't there yes yes pools uh from just again from a, a betting background pool is my actual bet for six man of the or for most improved player actually rather he's Ooh, my he's like my that. candidate for most improved player this season oh uh, so he's we can be a hype we, beast on twitter too right like he's easy to root for he's got a fun style he's going to get like an outsized amount of attention if he plays really well that's a pretty well, smart and, and the warriors never got a backup point guard so he's going to have a lot of creation responsibilities in those non-curry lineups unless he's playing starting and they they even still might make it work. Kerr's tried some different stuff in terms of starters leading the reserves. Um, we, I think we've already been best newcomers pretty much just Russell Westbrook. Um, we'll start with Matt. It's not the rookie you think is going to be best, but we've already talked about some of the real candidates. The rookie that you're most excited to see in the Pacific Division this year. <sighs> I mean, I'll go Davion just because I think like that's an easy one. Um, I'm not sure that there's like a lot of candidates here where it's like, ooh, I, oh, I can't woo because <laughs> you got four playoff teams and then the Kings, right? Like it's it's good team, good team, good team, and then the Kings. I will say like I, I am excited to see kind of what Kaminga. I think it's harder to identify guys that fit in the Warrior system than maybe is obvious, and so um, I think it's I, I don't necessarily think that Wiseman was an easy one to project would struggle even with his inexperience and everything else. Like, some guys just might pick it up. Kaminga might be a guy that picks it up. I am really excited about Moses Moody. I was extremely high on him. I'm very, I'm still surprised that he didn't go top 10. I am still surprised that so many teams passed on him. I think he's certified, verified, ready to go. Uh, outside Davion Mitchell, I think I'm most excited to see Moses Moody. Yeah, to me, it's, it's the Mitchell versus uh, Kuminga thing that I mentioned earlier. And I also think that like, you know, Wiseman didn't fit with the Warriors system last year, but I, I don't think we should underrate the, the amount that Clay Thompson 
Brunson makes the Warriors system go and makes life so much easier on all of his teammates and just creates space directly and indirectly for everybody. I'm not saying that Klay Thompson would have single-handedly saved the James Wiseman experience, but I think he would make it better. And I think there's a really good chance Wiseman himself looks a lot better once Klay's back in the lineup and, and uh, you know, up to speed, you know, looks just significantly better in that context than he did in last year's context. And I do think Kaminga's a, a more natural fit um, because he's going to have fewer responsibilities than they they were trying to ask Wiseman um, last year. I, I just think it's going to be a, a cleaner transition for him. So um, I think that that makes him, you know, a great guy to track. And, and Mitchell, I think, is, is like Matt said, uh, the most obvious one because he's the, the guy his team is relying on the most. You know, he's the most uh, important rookie in this uh, in this division. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm, Mitchell's my number one, but I'm happy Matt brought up Moody. I was going to do the same. And it, one of those, like, to me, Moses Moody, and he's at a much higher level than BJ Boston, this idea of like, if they're doing well, it does really change the way things look for their teams. Like, if BJ Boston can play, if he if he can actually do something, then it's like, oh, wow, the Clippers have another forward-sized guy who can actually do stuff for them. It takes some of the risk out of Justice Winslow, who's another just fascinating question mark in this division. Um, so do that. And then before we move all the way onto the onto the uh, season preview, I also want to mention, I really like the Suns bringing in JaVale McGee. Like, it's I, I, losing losing charge for the for functionally the year really does hurt but I think that there is a place for McGee in their rotation, both in the regular season and the playoffs. And so I'm, I'm excited about that addition too. I'm a little bit more skeptical. I think one mm-hmm. of the things that was so good for them last year was their ability. I think now, not necessarily in like your rote playing the magic on a Tuesday, but I think in any of your middle, your matchups versus teams in your tier or better than you, it's important to be able to, to vary things up with your bigs. Well, and they defended better two- in those lineups last year than I ever anticipated. Yeah, but I, I liked better to be able to be like okay we're just gonna go five out and switch everything and we're just gonna we're gonna muck you up that way um and you can't do that with JaVale and so like now they're a little bit more dependent on drop coverage versus pick and roll and that's fine you can be a really good pick and roll team and they'll still be very good defensively but I think that they will miss something from having not being able to go to a different kind of approach and really be like all right we're we're completely changing this up um and throwing out a completely different approach in playing switch all spread five i had uh both mcgee and eric bledsoe on my list of like intriguing newcomers just because i think you know bledsoe mailed in last season and he was terrible his last year in milwaukee uh much less pressure uh you know a pretty big opportunity very low expectations for him i think that's just kind of a nice fit. And then McGee, I, I hear what Matt's saying stylistically. I would just prefer not to have to watch Kaminsky basically ever again. <laughs> and I think McGee probably gets us closer to that reality. Um, and then just doubling back real quick on BJ Boston. I'm sure you guys know this, but it's amazing. I did an, I interviewed him when I was doing a story on Bronny at Sierra Canyon like two years ago because he was one of Bronny's teammates. And so the fact that LeBron could face BJ Boston or be on the court simultaneously is just a wild generational thing. And it just sort of hints at this future where you know Bronny and, and LeBron are going to be sharing an NBA core here in what like two or three seasons yeah that, that's wild um we'll start with Ben on this we're kind of getting into the season preview you can use whatever criteria you want but rank these teams one to five. Oh, it's tough look I, I usually go by who I think can win the title uh so I've got Lakers one I've got Suns two I you know the Suns didn't take a step back but I feel like you know Chris Paul is not going to be able to replicate what he did last year from a health standpoint from a consistency and impact 
quarterback standpoint. And I thought he was kind of their, you know, as I would call him, winfluencer, the guy who's kind of driving wins and losses. Um, I do expect a lot of their younger players to take a step forward, but they also had just incredible health across the board for all their main rotation guys during the regular season. And I just think that they're kind of a regression candidate. Um, I've actually got the Warriors three, Clippers four, Kings five. How do you see it, Matt? Uh, I've got the Lakers one, the Warriors two. Ooh, I like it. The Suns third. Very close third, but third. The Clippers, and then, of course, the Kings. (laughs) So badly want different things for them, but if they refuse to change, we can't change our opinion of them. Um, I think the Warriors are— why do you have the Suns dropping to three? If you look at it, and I'm I'm deep into win total analysis, a lot of it uh, is—there's two factors here. One, their injury success last year was just through the roof. They were were by far the healthiest team of the major contenders. Second, if you look at their win profile, they were good versus teams under 500, but not exceptional. That's a big factor when I'm looking at how regular season is going to go. And if we're looking at this from a championship perspective, I think you have to look at their playoff run and go, like, look, they ran in— to injury plague teams where they also had matchup advantages. The Nuggets literally couldn't run pick and roll versus them, which is a good way to attack their weaknesses because they didn't have a guard. And then they ran into the Clippers where they could not run, you know, the Clippers couldn't punish the switch because they didn't have Kawhi. So I think specifically when you look at those kind of things in the regular season, a lot of it for me is dependent on how do you do versus teams in your tier and how you do teams versus that are worse than you. That's how you build a good regular season record. The Suns were phenomenal versus the best teams. Unfortunately, historically, those aren't great indicators of sustainable success year over year. So I think the Suns take a little bit of a step back, don't have as much injury luck, just isn't going to be them. It's hard to have magical seasons back to back. And they had they were the, they had a special season last year in making the finals. But I think with short rest, this is a shorter offseason, Paul with another year on him, already missing Saric, all of those combined, I think that they slide just a little bit. I still think that there's a, a tier in the West, which is Nuggets, uh, Suns, and Warriors. I think those three teams are going to be a tier into themselves. Um, I think they're in that tier, but I do think that the Warriors, I will give a little bit of an edge to uh, because they're going to get Clay back by midseason. So you guys both uh, sounded like you were going over for Clippers on their over-under line or kind of leaning that way. Do you think uh, the Clippers will be one of the final eight playoff teams? Like, will they make it through the play-in and all that? I think so. I don't know. I'm not not as confident in them as as I am in some other teams, but I, I I think they're very talented. And for me, like when you're thinking about making it in and some of course a lot of it'll be health and everything else, but like the the almost or like the kind of the young teams at the edges, you think about, okay, let's get into a let's get into a one game playoff or a you know, two game playoff circumstance and the Pelicans or the Grizzlies who have made it and they've you know, they've they've gone through it a lot more than the Pels have and maybe Sacramento or Minnesota or one of the other teams and like I think the Clippers, if they get into, if they're in that eight through, you know, seven through seven through ten, I think they have a pretty good shot. And I and I think they have the talent to be theoretically above that, though I don't necessarily I haven't gamed out like the whole scope of the West. I think Matt's done more work on that than I have. I'm not willing to say for sure that the Clippers are going to make it out. And the reason is, I think it'll probably be very close in terms of well, not probably. I think a, a wide number of outcomes suggest that it'll be pretty close in win totals between. Uh, Clippers, Mavericks, maybe Blazers, depending on how the season goes. That I did like what they did in the offseason. 
Um, and even then, like, I think the Grizzlies have a chance to jump up. And the problem is we saw this last year. If I had told you before last season, the Warriors play the Grizzlies in the play-in tournament and Steph's <laughs> healthy, you would have been like, oh, so who's the Warriors playing the playoffs? And this is what the NBA wanted is this kind of environment. So I, I think there's a chance that the Clippers are the team that somebody catches. If they don't secure that six, I do think they're vulnerable when they get into the play-in matchup. Yeah, I think I don't know if I have them as one of the final eight playoff teams. I think that they're going to be in the mix for sure. One of my bigger concerns is just Paul George's availability because uh, I think if he misses time, that really changes the dynamic for them. Um, and I'm with you guys. Like there is some parallels between this year's Clippers and last year's Warriors in terms of vulnerability. Uh, you know, in that playing in that playing mix. Yeah. So that gets into the question of how many teams make the playoffs. For me, I think that there are four playoff caliber teams, but I'm going to go with three just because odds are one of them is going to get hurt enough where they don't make it. It seems like the bar is going to be pretty high in the West this year. So if the Warriors deal with something, the Clippers especially those two, then that's going to be a real challenge. And so you're kind of making a field versus Pacific bet. And so while I think there are four playoff caliber teams, I think three make it in. And that's into the final eight, not into the 10. One of my priors that I kind of like set out when I was like, all right, this is where I'm at before I start doing all the research was I think one of the Wolves and the Kings will make a jump this season. That they'll There's always like a surprise team and it'll be one of the Wolves and the Kings. Um, and then I looked at the Kings roster. So congratulations, <laughs> Timberwolves, for jumping into that uh the into the mix well there's a I, chance I think, they make a jump man i mean they were i think four or five and 18 without carl anthony towns last year you know yeah. that's a real submarining effect yeah oh i i love it for me it's just like chris finch just like i think chris finch really has i think coaching here is going to establish such a higher floor for them um well and I then think the lakers are locked sorry the when, one other quick point you brought up the 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 um the wolves without the wolves without carl anthony towns the kings were also abysmal last year without rashawn Holmes and like if that I mean well I don't think Tristan Thompson and Alex Len are going to set the world on fire like if they can be so last year when Holmes didn't play the Kings had a negative eight basically cleaning the glass differential that is horrendous <laughs> if that goes to like negative four like they're a lot better yeah yeah i mean I, them keeping him was one of the bigger off-season moves honestly yeah, i mean it was you know, it's like that's like a very blog boy take but that was a pretty big deal no it's true i think you're absolutely i think you're absolutely on point i think like the lakers are a lock the suns are a lock even more so i think than the warriors i agree uh, that's just weird is the guy the warriors higher but i think that they're the suns are more secure in a playoff spot um the warriors i think make it obviously and then i i do think you know at least if we're saying make the play-in tournament i'll say the clippers but i i would say three and a half is the over over under because I do think that there's a good chance that one of the Clippers or the Warriors slip and all of a sudden they're in more trouble. All right, we're, we're in agreement. I really liked how you guys both framed it. Danny's, uh, you know, four to make three, pretty much. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with that same thought. Okay, so we, we have a little bit of time left. Uh, we'll start with Ben. Uh, breakout players, I know you already mentioned Terrence Mann. Yeah, I think uh, Terrence Mann was on my list. Jordan Poole was on my list. Um, you know, one guy I'm going to be tracking this year uh, is eight in Phoenix. Like, is there more? Is there another step for him? Or, you know, when things were really going well for him last year, is that sort of his ceiling? You know, he's still very young. He was much more effective in the playoffs than I expected at least until the last few games where he got exposed a little bit um you know in terms of other younger guys maybe getting you know taking the next step I think Fox is in line potentially for you know a more serious um all-star uh run you know he hasn't made it yet he has a chance um you know Halliburton again should take a step forward and the forgotten man of the Lakers to me is THT and I don't know exactly how he fits with Westbrook but he is one of those guys who he's so young um he's got some skill to him maybe his 
attributes overlap with some of their best players, that could be a problem. But I don't want people to completely forget about THT. Mine, uh, Poole is my biggest one. I think that he's definitely on that list. I have a Laker, but it's not THT. I think Malik Monk puts himself on the Yes, I was going to say Malik. And gets actually noticed this season. Um, Cam Johnson, as opposed to campaign, I think Cam Johnson gets a little bit more recognition for what he does, especially after that playoff run. I think he carries that over and is pretty good. I don't know whether Juan Toscano-Anderson would be a breakout. I feel like he was noticed last year, but I think that he continues to be a, a key part of the Warriors rotation. Like a lot of it is like if I am as confident in the Warriors as I have to be, I have to believe a lot of these guys are going to have good seasons. So that's part of, of the hedges. They need as many guys having good seasons as, as they can get because they have such a combination of old guys that need rest and young guys that are inexperienced. So you guys have nailed all of the high-end guys for me. So I'm going to say two much, much lower-end guys. And it's more like if they establish themselves as high, as capable rotation players, that is a breakout in some sense. And what is Moses Moody? We talked about him a little bit earlier. And but just the idea for me breakout is that we talk about them meaningfully differently than before. And then the other one is a deep, deep like end one, and that's Abdul Nader. I think that he is a rotation level player on a good team. Got really looked like that to me before he got hurt last year. And then the, the Suns, Matt brought up their matchup advantages. They just didn't really need him, and he wasn't quite right towards the end of last year. I don't. He's probably fourth or fifth in the pecking order in that front court. But like, I still think he can play. I think he's a really good player. And then the, they got him at this really cheap price. But I think I think Monty Williams likes him. I think that he can play. So he, I, I would be thrilled to see Nader take a step forward. There was a ton of breakout guys or guys who really overperformed expectations in this division last year. I'd be curious to see how many of them we nailed. I can't imagine we nailed campaign. No, probably didn't. And I mean, he had a nice bubble too. But um, this is going to be a fun division to watch. Thank you guys so much for helping run through it with me. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Matt. It's always great chatting. Thanks again to Ben Golliver and Matt Moore for taking the time to come on. You can read Ben Golliver at the Washington Post. You can also check out his book, Bubble Ball, which is extremely exciting and a great insight onto such a memorable time in the basketball world, but in our business as well, and a lot of personal insight in there as well. And you can also follow him on Twitter, of course, at Ben Golliver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. And you can read Matt Moore's excellent work at the Action network you can also check him out on lockdown nuggets and often locked on nba and if you somehow don't already you can follow him on twitter at hp basketball love having those two gentlemen on and a lot to work through in the pacific division so i'm really happy that that we did that if you want to support the show there are a lot of different ways you can do it you can subscribe and download every episode that is a great thing to do whatever podcast player you use spotify apple wherever it helps because the show's never going to come out on a specific day of the week so if you subscribe then it'll just pop in whenever i publish it and you can also help other people find the show. That can be word of mouth. That can also be leaving a rating and a review. That helps other people. And yes, Real GM Radio has been around a long time, but people are still finding it and we still appreciate that. You can also check out my other work. Nate and I have been doing over-unders, which you could have also heard on Real GM Radio with Arturo. Um, you have that's out there. And then we did the mock rookie extensions. And then of course, a lot of other great stuff on Dunked On and Dunked On Prime. Then written work is at The Athletic in a little bit of a quiet stretch because I'm actually taking some vacation, but there's still plenty of great stuff there, of course, with other people, and I will kick into high gear upon my return, as always. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. I've actually been going through, I read them when they come in, but then I, if I think I want to read it again or reply, I read it again. I've been doing a lot of that actually recently, cleaning, cleaning my inbox, so I really do appreciate that, and that is 
more than enough for now. So keep an eye. Uh, Real GM Radio episode will come out pretty early next week. Um, and it's actually already recorded. So that's how I know it can come out early. But I'm really looking forward to it. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Angie's List is now Angie, your home for everything home. With Angie, you could cross your next project off your to-do list before this ad is even over. Just tell them what you need and they'll handle the rest, sending a top pro to get it done. Or browse reviews, compare quotes from pros, and connect instantly all for free for everything from routine maintenance to a dream remodel. Because however you want your project done, they'll get it done. Download the app or go to Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com to get started. A healthy lifestyle depends on quality sleep, and Sleep Number is here to help you sleep more efficiently. Sleep efficiency is the amount of restful sleep you have at night and is a key part of your overall health. Here are some tips to help you get the most efficient sleep possible. Reduce caffeine consumption before noon and limit late-night alcohol. Get regular exercise during the day, which helps you feel tired in the evening. And keep track of your sleep health with data from your Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Sleepers who routinely use their Sleep Number 360 smart bed features get almost 100 hours more proven quality sleep per year. With that much extra energy, you could get more quality family time, volunteer at a meaningful charity, or exercise, meditate, and reconnect with nature. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep, which starts with Sleep Number adjustability. It's time for Sleep Number's ultimate sleep number event. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 limited edition smart bed, plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com slash podcast one for details.